Vladimir Putin is threatening to erase the sovereignty, independence, and self-determination of Ukraine. What causes crisis? What are the likely consequences, not only for Russia and Ukraine, but for the U.S. and for Europe? How would a war between Russia and Ukraine turn out? What lessons are the rulers of China and Iran learning? How do Russian energy resources and Europe's need for them factor in? What are Putin's goals, short, medium, and long-term? What should be the goal of the U.S. and its allies? To dig into these issues, we're joined by James Brook, a former New York Times foreign correspondent and former Voice of America Moscow bureau chief, who just days ago left Ukraine, and where he had lived for six years as editor-in-chief of Ukraine Business Journal. Also with us, Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, who previously served as a Senate National Security Advisor, U.S. Army Officer, and Assistant Professor at West Point, and Brenda Schaefer, FTD's Senior Advisor for Energy. I'm Cliff May, and we're all glad to include you two in this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Brad, let me start with you and just maybe just outline the current military situation. What, What do we know? What don't we know? What do we think is going on? Thank you, Cliff. It's a real honor to join you and Brenda and Jim uh, to discuss this topic. You know, I I would say I would start with this. Uh, In October, November timeframe, we started to see indications uh, regarding a major military buildup uh, around Ukraine. uh, And that buildup has continued more or less apace since then. We're now to the point now where you have more than roughly 130,000 combat combat support and combat service support Russian troops near the Russia, the Russia-Ukraine border uh, in Belarus, in Russian-occupied Crimea, and potentially coming up via amphibious operations in the Black Sea. Now, Putin has very um, shrewdly said, what, you know, what me do anything wrong and uh, covered these in a guise or a disguise of military exercises. We have seen major military exercises before in some of these regions, and that allows him to build up the combat power and, uh, you know, and avoid the blame. But it's transparently cynical what he's doing, I think. Um, and uh, it remains unclear whether there will be a, an invasion. They've, Russia consistently denies that they plan to do an invasion. Uh, it's, it probably uh, will be ultimately uh, Vladimir Putin's decision. He may not have decided, and that invasion can take many different forms. But the bottom line is we are somewhere between 40% and two-thirds, going closer in the direction of two-thirds of the deployable combat power of Russia is assembling near Ukraine. And if this were to go forward in anywhere near that level of scale of activity, it would be one of the largest uh, combat operations in Europe since World War II. And what can you tell us about the um, 
defensive capabilities of uh, the Ukrainians? The, the, uh, when, you, when you look at Russia versus Ukraine, by most military power metrics, uh, there is no comparison. Uh, Russia is powerful, more powerful by far than Ukraine in almost every metric. Uh, a lot of people point out weaknesses, systemic weaknesses in the Ukrainian military. There's some truth to that, but it's also true that the Ukrainian military has gotten significantly better since 2014 in, in Crimea, what we saw happen in Crimea. Um, and they, by the way, we shouldn't forget that we have many uh, service members within the Ukrainian military that are combat hardened because of the Russian-supported separatist movement that they have been fighting in the Donbass. So if Vladimir Putin is sitting in the Kremlin thinking that he's going to have an easy walk in the park in, 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 in a major invasion of Ukraine, I think he'll have a rude awakening. And two things. I just want to re- tell people in case they will remind people, uh, Donbass is the eastern section of Ukraine. Uh, it's industrialized. In 2014, about the same time that, he, that uh, Putin took Crimea, he also sent in troops, some of them in uniforms, some of them not in uniforms. Um, and essentially, there's been warfare going on since 2014 in that region. It's a dangerous region. It's sort of semi-occupied, I would say. Conquering Ukraine is one thing. Holding it with that is another. It depends, you know, do people say, well, we're going to form a resistance and we're going we're gonna to make this very bloody and uncomfortable for the Russian troops who are here. Now, that's I think that's hard to predict how that works out. We've, but may, I don't know. Do you have a sense of how devoted they are to that, the people of Ukraine? You know, I very quickly, if I may, on Putin and and and, and with full deference to you, Cliff, who's followed, followed this for decades. You know, I I, re, I think Putin would be happy to accomplish his objectives at the negotiating table. So at a minimum, he's doing what uh, you know, former Secretary of State, the late George Shultz, said, trying to cast the shadow of power over the negotiating table. He'd be very happy to uh, achieve his concessions at the negotiating table. And absent that, I'm sure he'd be very happy to go back to his KGB colonel playbook and look at some assassinations and other uh, intrigue to potentially have a, a coup in Ukraine. But uh, you know, the point that you've made in your, in your column, Cliff, that is, that is excellent that I hope folks read, is that an actual military aggression against Ukraine could take different forms, and not all of them involve a major occupation where you would have high Russian casualties. They could use punitive long-range missile strikes and other events. They could just uh, formally annex the Donbass region that we were discussing earlier. They could come up from the south and try to connect some uh, Crimea via a land bridge. They could do something from Transnistria. There's a variety of, of things here, and they could take many different forms. And I think those many different forms will determine how many Russian casualties we'll see and in what areas they're fighting, as Jim knows better than me, you'll see different levels of, of opposition from Ukrainians. And I'll just make the one point and then ask you one more question before I move on. The, the column that you refer to will is uh, in the, the on the Washington Times website on uh, Tuesday night in the paper, Wednesday morning on the FDD.org website as well. Uh, I just want to make this clear. Um, Ukraine, we're going to discuss this more, but Ukraine is not a NATO member. American troops, um, NATO troops will not fight inside Ukraine. Neither are Ukrainians asking that they do so. What they have been asking for uh, is that they get the military, the lethal military equipment they need to better defend themselves by themselves. I just think that's an important point because you see some places would say, why should we go in there and fight for Ukraine? Well, no one's talking about us doing that. 
No, that's such an important point, Cliff, and and I'm so glad you emphasized just a, a quick additional comment on that. You're exactly right. You know, so you know, I'm a big believer in the value of the North Atlantic uh, uh, Alliance. Uh, I think it's a major grand strategic asset for the United States. Putin is a wonderful advertisement for the value of NATO membership because he's done what he did to Georgia in 2008 and he's done what he did in Crimea in 2014 and in the Donbass. And because both Ukraine and Georgia are not NATO members and his number one demand that he's saying is that he doesn't want Ukraine to become a NATO member. And of course, Putin's own actions are creating the primary reason why Ukraine would like to be a member. And so uh, exactly, the Biden administration said, we're not going to deploy U.S. combat forces to fight Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine's not asking for that. They are pleading for weapons. We've seen a, I, I have a piece in Defense News where I've talked about how the Biden administration was very slow uh, to respond to those requests. We have seen six shipments now arrive in there. Those are positive, but I think they're entirely insufficient and they're certainly belated. All right. They're going to come back to NATO, I hope, because I've got more questions than that. And let me go to Jim. Jim, you've lived in Russia. You've lived in Ukraine. Um, Putin says, and he said it particularly in an essay that I think he wrote or helped somebody helped him write, but I'm pretty convinced that it was his views. About a 5,000-word essay last came out last July. And the basis of it is that, hey, guys, Russia and Ukraine are now two separate countries. They're one country. Now, during the Soviet era, yeah, we may believe that uh, this was a separate equal republic of the Soviet Union. Ha, ha, ha. This is Russia. Who are you guys kidding? Talk to us a little about that. And tell, in particular, talk to us about how Ukrainians see it and how most Russians see it, too. Do they see it? Who di- how dare these guys break off with us? Or do they say, well, no, you know, they got, they're okay. Yeah, uh, I think Putin sort of sees Ukraine as a big Texas where people talk funny, carry guns, and have right <laughs> politics. <laughs> so, but an integral part of his view of the Russian empire. And Brzezinski said, Russia without Ukraine is not an empire. So it's a really crucial part. They could do without Kyrgyzstan or some of the little stands. Um, I think uh, in terms of what the Russian, and I lived there for eight years, you know, it's like the U.S. and Canada. I mean, there isn't a lot of difference between Americans and English-speaking Canadians, and I know we can debate that, but um, <laughs> they're they're intermarried. They're very friendly relations on the people level, very friendly relations. Uh, but, you know, the Russians have been inculcated with this very hysterical propaganda for the last eight years since the invasion of um, the Donbass. And, you know, they believe that Ukraine is run by Nazis. It, I mean, it has the only Jewish president outside of Israel, but it's run by Nazis. <laughs> you know? and, and when Zelensky took over, there was actually a Jewish prime minister. You know? Once again, only Israel had that twofer. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's irrational. Uh, and there's been a poll of young Russian men between 18 and 25 who would be doing the fighting, and they're not really interested in this battle against uh, Ukraine. Um on the Ukraine side, Ukraine has moved on. Um, you, Putin has lost the hearts and minds of Ukraine. And you can argue that Putin really, in a backhanded way, is the father of Ukrainian nationalism. We see, um, we call it a secessionist or a civil war. The Ukrainians, like 80%, see this as Russia attacking Ukraine, not just now, but going back to 2014. So they see that for eight years, they've been waging war to defend their country against Ukraine. Um, you've got a, the second largest land army in Europe after Russia, 250,000 men. 
many of them cycled through there. They all have, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, um, a larger group. Um, so the Russian fighting, the Ukrainian fighting force is not so bad. They've got, I think, 6,500 tanks and the British army has like uh, 250. So, you know, uh, it's, I wouldn't write them off by any means, but Putin has lost Ukraine, religion, language, and the military. Um, just look at language. Everybody in Ukraine for the last 35 years, kindergarten through the end of high school, through university, has been studying in Ukrainian. You know, it's a full-fledged language, which linguists say is actually closer to Polish than to Russian. You know, you can toss a coin about that one. Um, so they speak Ukrainian, and all the advertising is in Ukrainian, all the media is in Ukrainian. Um, and it's a very easy thing. It's not like reviving Gaelic in Ireland. I mean, Ukrainian mm -hmm. is very similar, and, and they've done a good job on that. And there's another phenomenon that Putin doesn't understand. You know, Putin would think that since the four of us are speaking English, we've got to be British subjects. <laughs> Sorry. You know, there's more to language than language is not nationality. But he thinks that because there may be 10,000 native speakers, uh, 10 million of um, Russian inside Ukraine, first language speakers, that they should be run by Moscow. Well, there's this phenomenon called the Russian-speaking Ukrainian patriot, which Putin doesn't quite capiche, doesn't get it. And, and he discovered to his mortification when they tried to declare people's republics in other cities of Ukraine and the people did not respond. And um, so language is big. The religion, I mean, on Putin's watch for the first time in I think 350 years, Ukraine's national has a national orthodox church recognized by um the patriarch in constantinople uh 334 years and that happened two years ago and about half the parishes in ukraine have migrated away from the control of moscow to the control of kiev now the moscow churches they did things like they refused to bury soldiers coming back dead coming back from the front line that went over like a lead balloon in villages. You know, it's like, where are these guys getting off? So um, you got a separate church, you got a separate language. And the army, um, once again, is, is very strong. And they've just announced they're going to bring in another 100,000. Uh, you've got a territorial defense. I was talking to a friend of mine in Kiev, and he said, you know, he's supposed to have a date a couple of weekends ago, but the woman is out attending sniper school. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't go together. It sounds like a great day to me. I don't know for her. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a real mobilization and 50% in polls, 50% of Ukraine say they will physically fight Russia. Um, another 20% say they'll engage in civil disobedience. Something that Putin would like to forget, but from 1944 to 1954, more Soviet security personnel were killed in Western Ukraine than during the 10-year Soviet occupation of, of Afghanistan. So we think the Mujahideen and the Taliban are pretty scary people, which they are. But, you know, the Ukrainians took their toll um, during that decade because they did not want to be part of the Soviet Union. Um, you've also had a real uh, decommunization, which is a big word for tearing down Lenin statues. It's called Lenin Pad. And um, every single Lenin statue in Ukraine has been torn down over the last eight years. There, there are two left, and they're both in Chernobyl, which is sort of a Soviet theme park. 
but um, all the May 1 towns and the October collectives, all these Soviet names have been changed. Now, what's also happened is many, many times they've been replaced by the names of the partisan and the Ukrainian National uh, Resistance Army heroes who have their own controversies behind them. But uh, you've had maybe seven years of glorification of the anti-Moscow, anti-Moscow resistance of 44 to 54. Um, and movie after movie glorifying the men and women that stood up and where they were couriers and they were doing sabotage. And so this has been the mood inside Ukraine for the last eight years. These are the, the films that people are watching. And um, so, so that is uh, something that Putin's going to have to deal with if he makes the move in. Um, now, one thing, just to follow up on what Brad was saying about um, the non-conventional warfare, we all know about hybrid. What Putin could do, which would really essentially kill Ukraine, is to blockade the Black Sea ports. Um, Ukraine is one of the top five uh, world food powers in terms of exporting food, and the Chinese would not be happy about this. But uh, they have a huge uh, Navy, uh, Russian Navy presence in Simferopol, uh, Sevastopol, excuse me, in Crimea, and uh, they could very easily uh, blockade the ports. And only 20% of Ukraine's exports travel by uh, rail uh, west to the EU. So that is a very uh, concerning uh, element. By the way, a, a note on timing as long as you brought it up. Um, I don't think that Vladimir Putin wants to insult or anger Xi Jinping in any way. And for that reason, I would predict that between February 4th and February 20th, there is no invasion. Now, why do I say that? Because that's when the Olympics are. And Xi Jinping wants to, the news media to focus on that. Then after February 20th, he all, the, the window is a little limited because he will want to go in while the ground is frozen hard so that his tanks and other such heavy vehicles can maneuver. He won't want to go in once the spring thaw begins. I don't, we don't know exactly when that ends, but sometime in March, that'll be the end of the, the, the real window of opportunity for him if he wants to have a, a land invasion. Yeah. And I think the, the German troops found that Ukraine in March was a sea of mud. Mm. Uh, it's big mud season. And I, I covered the Sochi Winter Olympics in Russia in 2014. And I remember seeing Putin, you know, 10 feet away. And he was hobnobbing with all the international <laughs> Olympic people and playing the game and, and even talking to the press. And it was all very funny. Turned out he'd been up the night before plotting until 3 a.m. the takeover of Crimea. He just <laughs> wanted the foreign Olympics to be over, and then he'd do it. And going back to the Chinese, there's that famous picture of uh, the Chinese premier talking to uh, George W. in Beijing for the Summer Olympics. And at the same time... Um, Putin was cutting Georgia in half <laughs> and it was a major distraction. And I think the Chinese are really pissed at that, uh, to have that sideshow going on. So I agree with you. I, I think he will not move during the Olympics. It's another point I want to get in before we move to Brenda. Um, and that is, you, you know, because you, you've seen my call, my sort of theory on this is that, and, and I've been a Putin watcher for a long time. And it's kind of funny just to note that I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union many, many years ago uh, at Leningrad State University at the same time that Putin was a student at Leningrad State University. Again, I'm not going to claim that we hung out together and 
drank brewskis and had a good time, but we were there and I followed him for a long time. So I think he believes, and with some justification, that he is the czar, the emperor of Russia, and that his mission is to restore the Russian empire, which fell apart when it was at the, in the Cold War. And that means a lot of things because the Russian empire, which became the Soviet empire, I mean, the, Soviet, the Soviets were not going to give up anything, even though they were going to claim they were anti-imperialist, including Central Asia, as you know, and then eventually Eastern Europe became theirs. And Putin has, I think, ambitions for all of that eventually. But particularly, as you know, Jim, the, the proper title was Tsar of all the Russias. And all the Russias meant Belarus, White Russia. And of course, the Russia, that's 11 time zones all the way to the, the Far East, where I know you've been. We've talked when you were there. But it also meant little Russia or the frontier of Russia. Ukraine means essentially frontier. And, he, and so to get that back is very much his mission. Belarus is pretty much a vassal state. Lukashenko, the dictator there, for a while kind of resisted, but really can't anymore. And as demonstrated by the fact we've got Russian troops pointing at Ukraine from Belarus right now. So I think that's important. There's one other thing. We believe in the West, I think, in the principle of self-determination and that no border should be erased through uh, military force. And for that reason, we should stand against this, among other things, because otherwise there's no international law. You can say that the Czechs and the Slovaks have a similar or have come from the same roots. But if they don't want to be Czechoslovaks, they want to be Czechs and Slovaks, they get you. You can say that Serbians and Croatians and Montenegrins, they're from the same roots. But if they don't want to be Yugoslavs, they don't have to be. And military force shouldn't be used. You agree with me on all that? Uh, yeah, I think uh, one of the best monikers for a czar was the gatherer of lands, which uh, is a catch-all phrase for this kind of perpetual expansionism. And a leader, a czar who expands Russia is a good czar. And you know, does the world's largest country really need you know, more real estate? I don't think so. But uh, that, that concept of gatherer of lands and... Uh, I think Putin, he's turning 70 in October, and he's worried about his legacy, and he does not want to be the czar who lost Ukraine after 300 years. Right, right, right. And by the way, the word czar, etymology, etymology it comes from Caesar. That's where yeah. it's from, really. Okay, let's. I want to talk now with Brenda a little bit about energy, because that this is playing a role that a lot of people don't understand. And in particular, what we see is that energy is the fossil fuels, the basis of the Russian economy. We buy very little else from there. Even vodka is not, there's much better vodka from Texas than you can get from, from, from Russia these days. The problem is that Germany in particular has decided, it would seem, to become more dependent on Russian gas and oil. Uh, very odd, it seems to me, maybe you can explain if there's any logic to it, Brenda, that the Germans under Angela Merkel decided to close down their nuclear power plants, which have zero emissions. And instead, they've been building Nord Stream 2 to bring in additional uh, fossil fuels. Um, most uh, the administrations before this one were against it. Biden decided essentially to give his blessing. Maybe he thought this was a gesture that would be reciprocated, that the Germans would appreciate, that Russia would appreciate, and that would help things. But it didn't turn out that way. Is there a logic to this that, I, that I'm not understanding? 
Um, yeah, first thing, I mean, I think this crisis has huge implications for both oil and natural gas. So I think that media tends to focus on natural gas because that's, you know, Ukraine as a as a former major, you know, transit state of Russian gas. But with such a tight global oil market, you know, above $90, easily, you know, we can get to $100, $100 a barrel, uh, which would have, you know, it's huge economic implications, but also, psych- you know, psychological political implications, you know, for domestically for the United States. Um, and Russia, even by just holding back a little bit of oil production, which is a lot less accountable. I mean, when you have gas stoppages, you see it, right? Like the pressure goes down, you, you, the, you know, the, it, it's very clear that the gas isn't flowing. With oil, if they just release 300,000 barrels less a day, that's enough to 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 pop up the price, you know, probably another three, four dollars toward, towards a hundred um, and it's a lot less accountable because that's more like self self accounting with with oil. So when I'm concerned about the oil issue, yeah, gas is in the back background. Um, but I think that the West uh, or the United States has supersized Nord Stream two. We've turned it into something much more strategic than it is. And then yes, in 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 a way because of that, those policies. Um, you know, this is. I think part of the goals of uh, of Putin in this current current round uh, with Ukraine, um, but it really isn't additional Russian gas to Europe. It's a it's a new route, in my opinion. I'd love maybe James, if you if you feel differently on this, I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, I, I think actually getting Ukraine off its pusher is actually good for the Ukrainian economy, Ukrainian politics. We're talking about. A billion, a billion and a half dollars a year transit fees. It's really not that essential if your whole budget depends on on a billion and a half. And we've just turned, you know, we've just turned this into a symbolic um, issue when it's really a lot less important than it looks. I agree the optics of, you know, I mean, there's a couple decisions, um, you know, releasing the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 at a high, you know, the height of a, of a conflict with Russia. Um, even the administration's decision to withdraw support from the East Med pipeline um, from Israel, Cyprus, and Greece, that pipeline never had any commercial support. It was not going to happen. But the optics of withdrawing support while you're having a crisis with Russia over Ukraine, uh, the timing seems pretty, you know, qu- quite uh, uh, pro- problematic. Yeah, Jim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Right. I think, uh, North, you're, you're correct that the gas going across Ukraine has dribbled, dwindled to about 20% of where it was at the height of the Soviet era. Let's put it that way. Um, maybe 25%. Uh, it's, but it still has a geostrategic value. In other words, if you, if Russia does not depend on this route, uh, it's kind of their hands are not tied for attacking Ukraine. Uh, there's no downside for them. They can still meet their markets. Um I think Putin is playing as fairly carefully in that he's he's not given the Europeans extra gas. As you know, the reservoirs are dangerously low, especially in some countries. But um, he's he's kind of meeting his contracts. So on one level, it looks like he's he's being a good businessman, so to speak. Um, but he's getting a huge run up, and the price of gas in Europe has increased eightfold. He, he's making money hand over fist on this. Um, now, I think he realizes that he can't, I was reading an essay about, can he shut the gas off entirely to Europe? And that would be very bad for Ukraine because the slow 
Europeans would finally realize they are too dependent on Russian gas and would work on alternatives. And, you know, alternatives are Norwegian and um, North African, even Nigerian gas, LNG, obviously. Um, I think there's another thing that we Americans don't take that seriously, which is uh, the wind and solar renewables. But the Europeans take it very seriously, and they have this sort of green 30-30 plan. And that's really going to hurt Russia. I mean, there's some thought that Putin may act this winter because his power is at its peak. Um, His Europe's dependency on his gas is at its peak. And that, um, I mean, there was a day last March, you know, the British Isles are quite windy, but hurricane blew across the British Isles and supplied half of their electricity. You know, this is not a fringe thing. You know, everyone curses Scotland's weather because it's so darn windy. Well, now (laughs) Scotland is not known for North Sea oil, it's known for their wind power. Um, And I think if you play this out, 2020 is, what, 18 years from now or so, Europe will be importing a lot less gas from Putin, and he'll have much less leverage over uh, Europeans. Okay. Let me um, go ahead, go ahead, respond, yeah. Brenda. Yeah, two things. You know, one on the current European um, gas crisis, both price, you know, security of price and security of supply. Yes, Russia is a factor, but Putin walked into an open door, a door that the EU opened for him. Exactly as you know, one point, you know, this this idea that you know finance majors with the game theory thought, oh, let's don't have contracts. Um, and then these little models and, and that, the, you know, with the price surge, it'll, it'll bring gas to, to Europe, right? Well, basically, that's like saying, hey, I have a way for you to have cheaper, uh, a ch- cheaper car. Don't pay your insurance payments. Sure, that would, that would be cheaper, right? But, you know, Europe basically set itself up for this crisis. It sits next to the biggest reservoirs of gas in the world, you know, Russia, North Africa, East Med, Caspian, even eventually, you know, at some point, Iran. And instead of, making deals and tying itself and getting the cheaper pipeline gas, it decided to tie itself to the international LNG liquefied natural gas markets, which is much more expensive, much more volatile. I mean, basically, by by moving over to hub-based prices, it helped Russia because Russia is the swing uh, producer. And I would also say, I have to say, I disagree about the, you know, the, the sort of near-term green future for Europe, because we forget all the time, every U.S. policymaker, European policymaker, that today's renewables go hand in hand with natural gas. That that 50% win that you talk about was dependent on 95% gas being available and keeping the baseload fuel stable. So um, I, I, I think that I think actually current generation of renewables, it's actually uh, creates demand for natural gas um, more more than the opposite. Brad, um, let me play devil's advocate or Putin's advocate here for a second, uh, in the sense that, um, look, people say, hey, you know, we didn't want Soviet missiles in Cuba. Um, he doesn't want American missiles in Eastern Europe. He claims that uh, NATO is a threat to him. Um, any legitimacy to his claim that NATO is a threat to him? Uh, short answer, my short answer would be no, absolutely not. And I, I'm so glad you asked that, Cliff, because you hear a lot of Americans kind of echoing, perhaps unwittingly, that Kremlin talking point. And it's particularly uh, notable for me that you hear a lot of folks on the American right uh, echoing that talking point. And I think of Ronald Reagan rolling in his grave when I hear that sometimes. And, you know, the suggestion that uh, 
NATO is Napoleon in terms of the threat to Russia or, or NATO is Nazi Germany in World War II in terms of threat. To, I mean, it's, it's just not credible. If anyone looks at the facts on the ground and anyone looks at the history, NATO, I would argue, has shown incredible restraint in terms of the combat power we put near Russia. And as I said earlier, the primary reason the Baltic countries are pleading for American permanently stationed forces and weapons and the Ukrainians and Georgians want to get into NATO is because of Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I'm not advising Vladimir Putin. I wouldn't want to. But if I were, I'd say, you know, hey, if you're concerned about NATO expansion, you're concerned about uh, Western combat power, and you're, you know, note to self, maybe you should stop invading and occupying your neighbors. That might be a good place to start. And so I, I, I um, this idea that there's something comparable, you know, and, and you have to look at the nature of the weapons too, right? I mean, I, I was working in the Senate when the Obama administration refused to provide weapons to Ukraine to arm itself. And it was based on this provoc- what I call the provocation premise, which HR, which is related to what HR McMaster's called strategic narcissism, where we think everything that bad that happens in the world is because a reaction to us. And I, I just always like to, to echo what he says, and that is sometimes there's just authoritarian thugs that are going to take what they can get. And sometimes there are terrorists who want to kill us, and we just have to decide how we respond. And as Jim has said eloquently, and Cliff, as you have written eloquently, you know, Putin wants to reconstitute as much of the Soviet Union as possible. He's got a worldview of might makes right, and that's directly contradictory to the post-World War II order of self-determination, international borders, and, and rule of law. And American has whether we want to listen to the wisdom of Winston Churchill when he said appeasement is feeding someone else to the crocodile in hopes that he'll eat you last. We should not feed Ukraine to the crocodile. That will not go well. The only reason nations want to join NATO is because they fear somebody, and that generally is Putin who they fear. And I think we believe that a free nation, a more democratic nation, should have the right to join a defensive pact if it wants to and not be vetoed by a neighboring dictator, which is what Putin is saying we should not only recognize but guarantee in a treaty. And he's not asking, and that's not a request, that is a demand he is making. You will guarantee that you will never admit NATO. It could actually be easier for him to say to, and he may, to the Ukrainians, I want you to guarantee to me that you'll never apply to join NATO. That would be harder for us to uh, to stop. One thing I wanted to get back to, I think you're absolutely right, Jim, that since 2014, with the taking of Crimea, with the taking of Donbass in the east, with all that's gone on, um, Putin has done more for Ukrainian patriotism than anybody in world history. But it's worth remembering, because people don't, what happened in the Soviet era. And I'm thinking in particular, of the Holodomor. Am I pronouncing it, pronouncing it right? Holodomor, Holodomor. Which means, right, it means extermination by famine. This was a famine that was imposed by Stalin on the Ukraine um, because they weren't collected. It was Go ahead. Engineered. He actually sent the Ukrainian troops to Siberia and uh, they locked off villages and let them starve to death and they killed two to four million people out of a larger population of maybe 18 million. Uh, And it's a traumatic thing. And the largest museum in Ukraine is now being built honoring Holodomor. And and this is something that obviously was suppressed during the Soviet era and only kind of dribbled out a little bit. But once going back to the 30 years of independence and people learning to speak Ukrainian, they all know about the Holodomor. They all have watched these interviews with survivors. Uh, it's a central thing. And the Russians say, well, there was a lot of people killed in Kazakhstan and you know, Rostov and sort of thing. But th- this was really designed 
to subdue the Ukrainians who always are hard to control. And to the extent that until uh, he'd starved, Stalin had starved the Ukrainians into submission, then he moved the capital from Kharkiv, which is about 50 miles of the Russian border, to Kiev, to center Ukraine, because he traumatized and depopulated much of the country. And uh, he felt that he was secure having the capital of Ukraine in, in back in Kiev. Um, so that, that's very central, and it's incontrovertible, and um, the Russian protests just sort of go over people's heads. Uh, they don't really take them seriously. Yeah, we're running low on time, but there's at, least, there's at least a couple of subjects I need to get need to get in here. I think it's important for people to understand. And uh, this one, I guess, Brad, you answered this one, but anybody who wants to. And the question is, what is the Budapest Memorandum? Hint, it is not a Robert Ludlum novel. <laughs> you want to answer that? I can take a swing or Jim can't. Whatever. Go ahead. Yeah. Take a Bottom swing. line is, I don't think we can be talking enough about the Budapest Memorandum because what, what it is in, in 20 seconds or less is it is, is a mem- and, and Jim, or you can correct me if I get the details wrong. It's a memorandum signed by Moscow, by Ukraine, by the United States, and I believe the United Kingdom, that basically in which Ukraine agreed to give up the Russian nuclear weapons on its territory in return for guarantees from all parties, but obviously Russia, that they would not use military force against Ukraine and, and threaten it or use it. So Russia is in direct violation of the Budapest Memorandum right now. Uh, and, you know, Ukraine's saying, boy, maybe I didn't, you know, wish I hadn't given up those nuclear weapons. But I mean, this, this is the, uh, that's the central issue. And anyone who's been paying attention for the last decade or two, though, shouldn't be surprised that Russia doesn't feel constrained by its commitments. I think INF treaty and otherwise. So this is, they're being consistent at least in blowing off their, their treaty and, and commitments and other obligations. Yeah. Right. I mean, point, go ahead. We forget that 30 years ago, Ukraine was the world's third largest nuclear power. They yeah. gave all these Soviet nuclear weapons back to Russia in, in return for a piece of paper. Now there are a couple of implications there. One is, Ukrainians don't go for Finlandization and, and pieces of paper that will respect their sovereignty or their neutrality. Uh, but unfortunately, other countries that were watching, well, Americans don't really know what Buddhist memorandum is. The North Koreans know and the Iranians know that uh, mm-hmm. you can sign a treaty, give up your nuclear weapons and get, get hit over the head. Uh, right. Right. And the Chinese know because of uh, they had an agreement with Britain that uh, Hong Kong would the rights of the and freedoms of people of Hong Kong would be respected. And they violated that if treaties can be violated with impunity, if giving up nuclear weapons is a bad idea, we are shaping an international environment that is not friendly to American <laughs> values and interests. Um, two more questions I'm going to do, and then I'll, but I'll, I'll let you if you have one, other points that you really want to get. And I'll, I'll give you a chance to do that, too. One is this. I'm going to be bipartisan about this. After 2014, the United States and its NATO allies should have said, we have a problem with Putin. We need to deter him from ever do. If we can't roll him back, how do we deter him from continuing on? He's now, he's taking, he's like two provinces off Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. He's taken Crimea. He's in Donbass. We got to, we got to do something. And we've had what, three administrations in a row that seems to me have not said, this is a problem. We're going to attempt to solve it in a serious way. That's why it's a bipartisan criticism. I think you're nodding your head, Jim. Let me me turn to you first. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I I think the worm has turned this winter. I I think that the Biden administration, Boris in London, 
and the EU realize we've got to stop uh, Putin in Ukraine, that he wants more than Ukraine. And, and then there is a whole Chinese thing. The Chinese are watching very closely. And if the West um, folds on Ukraine, well, it's green light for grabbing Taiwan. So Absolutely. I, I think that- Because Ukraine is a country, Taiwan is only a rogue province. Yeah, it's a nice place. I've been there. It's a nice rogue province. <laughs> I think it's a country. You think it's a country, but most of the world doesn't think it's a country. So it's it's easier in a certain way. I, mean, I don't mean to belabor that. Um, Cliff, go ahead. You, you want Brad, to, yeah. Uh, and you brought it very aptly that many people seem to think that uh, you know NATO is an aggressive alliance that's going to gobble up you know Western Russia. Do you know the lineup of battle tanks? How many do the Russians have, and how many does NATO have? Uh, and maybe throw in the Brits, even though they're on an island somewhere. You know, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it's a great question. Cliff and I were exchanging emails about this. I think it was yesterday. When, when if you look at the total combat force of NATO, it's it's quite, and including the non-U.S. combat force of NATO, it's quite significant. Uh, but you know, obviously, various degrees of readiness and logistic, logistical and maintenance readiness. Not to mention whether the respective nations, you know, those twenty-nine other member nations, would have the political will to employ it. Um, there, there, there's no doubt that there's significant combat power there. I mean, you have multiple countries with F-35s. You have, you know, France, United Kingdom with aircraft carriers. You know, there's real. You have little niche capabilities by some of the Baltic countries on cyber. You know, so there, there, there's real capability there. But in the end, right, we know that military force is only as good as your ability to use it or your political will to use it. And, and those are two different things, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, one more. A friend of mine was, uh, he heard that uh, the Germans are going to send 5,000 helmets. He thought, oh, great. And they, I thought, I thought you meant 5,000 helmets. <laughs> <laughs> but Cliff, can I jump in? Yeah, on that go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I can't resist. So I've got a piece coming out uh, maybe tomorrow on this very issue. And, you know, even as the U.S. intelligence community is warning that we could see a massive Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, right? Ukraine requested, you know, ships and weapons from Germany. And what, and Jim, as you just said, what was Berlin's response is, hey, we're going to send some helmets. And exactly, you know, as someone who's, you know, worn some helmets and fired some weapons, I, I, you know, I'd prefer to have a weapon if I have to choose than a helmet, but a helmet's nice. But, you know, German uh, defense minister Lambrecht tried to justify this decision by saying, quote, the German government has agreed that we do not send lethal weapons to crisis areas because we don't want to fuel the situation. But here's the problem. That's actually not true at all. Germany has a, I would say, a proud history of sending weapons to South Korea. For example, including during 2017, the year of fire and fury, and that helped deter a North Korean aggression. They have a history of sending it to the Baltics. I'm talking tanks and howitzers and patrol craft. So there's something unique going on there with Ukraine that makes uh, you know uh, makes Berlin particularly nervous. But it's not accurate to say they have not sent weapons to conflict conflict zone. And let me just ask this, and I'm going to each of you one minute to make any points that you want to make that I didn't ask questions to to bring out from you. And that is this, you, you know. Jim, you say that the worm has turned and NATO sees it differently. I'm not sure Germany does. Germany has not been a had, I mean, Germany sending helmets, that's not contributing in the way it should. Germany doesn't spend 2% of its, it's the richest country in Europe. It doesn't spend what it should on the collective defense. Germany doesn't, Germany seems to be very, I don't know, solicitous of Putin. And by the way, a few other countries, Croatia, has said it would pull its troops from Eastern Europe. 
uh, in the event of a conflict with Russia. I, there's two things going on here that I'm, I'm not sure which is the truth. One is that Putin has already successfully shown the divisions and dysfunctionality of NATO. But the other possibility is that now NATO sees those dysfunctions and, 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 and divisions and recognizes or will recognize that it has to make more of an effort, that it can't just be doing what it's been doing, which is, yes, you join, you don't have to contribute to the collective security. What you're getting is an American guarantee of your security, whether or not you do anything in support of, uh, uh, of NATO. Um, let me ask you, just weigh in on that and any last thoughts you have, and then, we'll, then we'll, 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 we'll close it out for today for now. Uh, just a quick thought. I was very good friends with an Italian ambassador in Kiev, and he said, you know, um, the big Italian companies don't want to go into Ukraine. They don't want to screw up their relationships with Russia. And I, I'm just names like Fiat Olivetti, uh, that the Russians do have a veto power, and it's one reason why Ukraine does not have a normal investment environment because for the Germans, the big stage is the commercial relationship with, with Russia. Mm -hmm. um, Brad, your final thoughts here? No, I, uh, thanks, Cliff. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Brenda and Jim. I, I just would, uh, uh, if I may, end where I began. And this really is a, uh, a clash of two worldviews, which sounds very academic and wonky, but it has real world consequences. Let's remember, we had two world wars begin in Europe that involved the violation of international borders. This is something that implicates Amer core American national security interests and democratic principles. And I think we are weak at our own peril. And Brenda, by the way, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll tease you with this one. We also had two world wars in which oil played a pivotal role. Why did Germany, why did Nazi Germany invade Russia? Well, I don't think it's because Hitler thought wouldn't it be nice to have a little villa in Stalingrad. I think he wanted the oil of the Caspian and needed it because he didn't have enough oil for his tanks, as we learned the Battle of the Bulge, when his tanks ran out of, 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 of fuel and were bombed like sitting ducks. And World War I, it was very much about oil-powered uh, weaponry. That's very much what the war was about. So let me get, get your final thoughts on all this, if, if you can. It's a hard question, I know. Sure. I, I recall the films of you know Hitler taking his uh, birthday cake and taking a bite of uh, Baku, which was, which was his goal uh, you know, with, with the invasion of southern Russia, exactly to get to the Caspian. The geopolitics of energy has not gone away. The fact that people have uh, dreams of of of, uh, of a future without fossil fuels—that future may come, but it's it's not uh, quite it's not quite soon. And we really need to still worry about conventional uh, security of supply and security of uh, price. You know, we're already having factories. It's not just about getting the energy, but at what price? We already have factories closing down in Europe. And that can bring a chain reaction that eventually, you know, triggers a global uh, recession. It, it really is something that that could happen. On the other hand, the gas weapon you only you only get to use it once. You use it once, it creates a crisis, and and countries respond. And by the next winter, they're in a different situation. And Europe was, I mean, for for decades, the United States, together with Europe, really took care of European energy security. You know, we see, uh, you know, projects that you mentioned, the Caspian Southern Gas Corridor that. One of the only markets right now in this crisis and last winter that's functioning pretty well is actually in Italy, which has also the, you know, the pipeline supplies through, through, through this project. So we still need to think about the hardware of energy. Renewables, today's renewables goes hands in hands with natural gas. You need that base load fuel. We don't have 
a technology right now uh, to replace that. And um, yes, the the the, the um, we, we really need to return the current White House um, national security guidance mentions the word energy ten times. Seven out of the ten, it's in the context of clean energy, and the other three aren't in the context of energy security or security. We really need to get back in the game of energy security. That's a very important. That's a very important point, and and one we should come back to and give a whole, uh, a, a whole at least a whole podcast to. We could have gone on for hours more here. Um, the time has gone very fast. The conversation has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Brenda Shaver. Thank you, Brad Bowman. Thank you, Jim Brooke, my old friend. And thanks to all of you for being with us and listening with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.